I mean, we went from something like two or three thousand Medicaid reimbursements for, for for telehealth visits in January and February, and then it was eighty thousand in March, and it was like two hundred eighty thousand in April. That's Christian Mater. He's the founder and editor of The Current, which is an online news and culture publication in Lafayette. Christian and independent journalist Marie Elizabeth Oliver are on the podcast today to talk about a recent reporting project. They looked at how Louisiana used phones to connect people to healthcare and social services in the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. They'll explain why using the phone to deliver healthcare specifically might be helpful even after the pandemic ends. I'm Julie O'Donohue, and this is the Illuminator Podcast. says he was initially curious about how people were accessing their doctors and medications during the early months of the pandemic. For me, right, it was just sort of the obvious, okay, well, people can't get to their doctor, so what are they doing, right? And in the course of that reporting, like the first thing that I found that was pretty remarkable, honestly, was was looking at um, Lafayette General here, well, now Oshner Lafayette General uh, here in Lafayette and how they were reporting at the time, you know, unprecedented levels of telehealth adoption, right? And not just across the board, but specifically among uh, people who are insured by Medicaid. Um, so it's important to note that that had never really happened before. I mean, like telehealth, even though we sort of bragged about it, I think I say we, I mean, modern Americans brag about it as sort of this thing that could, you know, change the game. But the reality was it hadn't been. People weren't really using it. Before the pandemic, patients probably weren't taking advantage of telehealth because doctors and nurses didn't want to use it. There were too many rules. Medicaid wouldn't let doctors bill in the same way for an appointment that happened over the phone, and the federal government required video connections to be extra secure during telehealth meetings. That meant that before the pandemic, Doctors and nurse practitioners couldn't use popular platforms like FaceTime or Zoom to meet with patients. But COVID-19 was such a game changer that some of those restrictions went away. Here's Marie Elizabeth explaining what happened. In the past, it was very limited and it was limited because of the way you know, doctors could receive reimbursements for these visits. It was, there were a lot of restrictions on them. They had to follow certain protocols, use uh, certain portals, and it was, it was difficult for them. And so what the pandemic did was kind of lift some of these restrictions. And, and basically they said, you know, you can, you, whatever you need to do to be able to treat your patients, um, you know, will will kind of lift those restrictions. And so it, it opened a lot of, of doors. The relaxing of these rules likely contributed to a huge surge in telehealth in the Medicaid program. Through his reporting, Christian discovered that telehealth was helpful for treating opioid addiction specifically. During the early months of the pandemic, 
people met with doctors remotely in order to receive prescription refills for a medication that keeps drug cravings under control. Normally, those would have been in-person meetings. But it turned out that opioid patients were more likely to keep their telehealth appointments during the pandemic than their in-person appointments they scheduled before COVID-19 ever came. What we did see, right, were that people who were already in the system, who already had relationships with physicians, who had a doctor or a nurse practitioner that was prescribing them buprenorphine, um, were keeping their appointments at really, really, really high levels, right? So there, there was this kind of convention, right, within uh, the mental health community, behavioral health community, that you know the, the, they call it the Medicaid no-show rate is about fifty percent, meaning fifty percent of the time people make an appointment they don't show up. Well, you know, I talked to a lot of um, prescribers around um, the, the state. What we were finding is that people would keep their appointments at higher rates, right? Which is essential if you know, ultimately what you're trying to do is stick with the program, right? You might assume that telehealth would be difficult in some parts of the state. Louisiana struggles with broadband access and lots of people don't have access to the internet at home. But during the pandemic, Medicaid hasn't required that telehealth visits be done over video chat. A lot of the treatment could take place over the phone. Here's a case where you don't actually have to roll out any cable to make a big difference, right? Like you can stick with a with a technology that people already have, which is a telephone, and you allow them to use it, and you have a result to show for it, namely that that people will actually keep their appointments and and get healthy. And and I can't emphasize this enough. And this medication itself is life saving, right? Like we're not just talking about people just being able to kind of check in. Like this is a course of treatment that is demonstrated to be very, very, very powerful. And so reducing barriers to access to that is actually a life-saving procedure, and it seems to be something that we can do without spending a lot of money. Telehealth is helpful, but Christian says that doesn't mean we will see the end of face-to-face doctor visits. Like They don't see this as a replacement or a viable replacement. They still want to see patients in person, and I, and I think that's always going to be a desire. And so the idea that this is something that would to replace the conventional way that we deal with patients, I think isn't really realistic. More broadly, Marie Elizabeth hopes that Louisiana learned some big picture lessons about what keeps people from accessing healthcare. Louisiana expanded Medicaid in 2016, which gave hundreds of thousands of more people health insurance in this state. But that doesn't mean there aren't other barriers that keep people from getting care. Marie Elizabeth says not speaking English has been a big hurdle for immigrant communities during the COVID outbreak. You didn't have to have insurance to go to these free testing sites, but if they didn't have information that these sites existed in a language they understood, then they they weren't able they weren't able to go because they they didn't they didn't understand or they heard that you had to have a government ID, a driver's license. They didn't have that. And I think that when we are, it's very relevant when we're thinking about rolling out this vaccine, which I'm hoping, assuming that, you know, you won't need insurance to get. When we're talking about this vaccine and we're talking about trying to get as many people to take it as possible, we really have to go back to the lessons that we learned at these testing sites. Why weren't people going? You know, was it because they didn't have transportation? Was it because they didn't have a government ID? Was it because they didn't trust the system? They needed more information. Whatever it was, these 
these barriers are critical when we are thinking about public health. So I think the lessons that we learned in reporting this story uh, are going to be be crucial as we we go forward in the fight against this pandemic. And that's it for this week's podcast. You can read the current series on telehealth and phone assistance at thecurrentla.com. We'll also link to the series in our podcast web post. As always, please consider subscribing to our show and leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It helps other people find our content. I'm your host and producer, Julie O'Donohue. You can find me on Twitter at J.S. O'Donohue. My editor is Jarvis DeBerry. You can find him on Twitter at Jarvis DeBerry. And you can find the rest of our Illuminator content at lailluminator.com. Until next time, so long. So The Current is relatively new. It debuted in 2018, and Christian says he wanted it to fill a void. I started uh, The Current after my old job at the at an alt-weekly in the Lafayette area was, was closed down, kind of one of the many alt-weeklies in the country that were laid to waste.